pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would in your grace and mercy attend to us now, both at the hearing and the preaching of your word. There are a lot of messages and emotions flying about in these days, and we need you to cut through the chaos and speak to us, Lord, and ground us in the things that are true and enduring. And so we pray that you would do some of that work this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to do something of a course change in the preaching plan. I had planned to preach on Daniel 6. We've been making our way through the book uh, where Daniel finds himself in a lion's den. But like some of you and much of the country, I was surprised by what happened on Tuesday. And so I want us to take a different direction this morning. That is not to suggest, however, that Daniel 6 doesn't speak an important word to us. While some woke up on Wednesday morning feeling like perhaps they had avoided a lion's den of one type, there are many others who feel like they have just stepped into one. And if you've spent any time on social media or news media, you have probably seen uh, both of those. Whatever our feelings are about what happened on Tuesday, Daniel 6 speaks a powerful message about faithfulness. Daniel's faithfulness, and we can see that in how he persists in prayer and goes presumably to his own death. But more importantly, and as we've been seeing all along, God's faithfulness. The book is about God. The book is about how God sticks with us and is sovereign through the ups and the downs. And it's only in God's faithfulness and knowing that and resting in it that we might be faithful. And that is Daniel 6 for us once again. So I commend the chapter to you. But today I want to spend some time in the book of Colossians. And I want to change the imagery from that of lion's den to that of wind and waves. You see, some Christians were preparing for a particular kind of storm. They were expecting the cultural, political, and moral hurricane that we've been tracking to make landfall at a particular place and a particular time. A lot of Christians have been preparing for that, boarding up their windows, asking questions about what does faithfulness look like in these days, given these changes. But then Tuesday, it feels like the storm shifted in a way. It did not make landfall in the particular way that many people supposed it would through the election of Hillary Clinton. But I don't think that means the storm has gone away or that another storm might not make landfall at another place and cause great destruction. It feels a little bit like we traded a storm that we knew for a storm that we don't know very well in President-elect Donald Trump. So regardless of our feelings, I think we find ourselves in uncharted waters. Some feel hopeful, some feel afraid, some are concerned about what the future holds. The concern I want to address today is not with the direction of the country, it's not with the government, it's not even with the morality in the culture. My concern is for the church and its individual members for us. How might we chart a course through this storm? So maybe the wind and the waves have shifted, but regardless of who's president, there is still a storm 
and it blows against the church. It blows against anyone who wants to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. That's the case in every generation. Whether Nero is an emperor or Donald Trump is a president, there is always resistance. There is always wind and wave. It always has the threat to throw us off course. We see this very imagery used to express some of the same concern in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians, he calls the church to no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. James also picks up the imagery when he compares a person full of doubt to a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, what our Lord calls us to, what the Lord calls the church to, is a sober-minded faith. He calls us to stability. He calls us to stay the course, regardless of how wind and wave shift and change, regardless of what particular storm we find ourselves in. I've done a bit of sailing, and by a bit, I truly mean a bit. Uh, Paisley's parents live on a small lake in Florida, and they have a Hobie cat. If you're not familiar with that, the Hobie Cat's like the two pontoons with the trampoline in the middle. It's a fun boat to take out on a small lake in moderate winds. And we've um, taken it out and had some decent winds. A couple times we flew a hull, which means you have one pontoon out of the water, almost tipped it over. It was a lot of fun. But my father-in-law has explained to me that you don't want to take a Hobie Cat out if the winds are too strong. He's learned that from experience. Because a Hobie cat sits on top of the water. It's got its two pontoons, it's got its, its rudder, but it really is just sitting on top of the water. It doesn't have enough weight or depth in the water to act as a ballast or a counterweight to the force of the wind. And so what happens is if a strong wind comes along and it blows you, then you're just going to go where that wind goes because you don't have the weight. I think that is what is happening to the church, and to many Christians a lot of the time. I think much of this election season has been an example of us being blown and tossed here and there. Some were blown over this direction. Some were blown over that direction. It felt chaotic. It felt confused. And worst of all, brothers and sisters in Christ were set against each other based on what we thought about a man or a woman. The church was divided, still divided, it is driven and tossed by wind and wave. We must not mistake these winds of politics, of culture, because they are powerful. They all are gale force winds at times. And so if we want to stay the course, then we must have some sort of ballast that is weighty enough, that is deep enough in the water to act as a counterbalance to wherever the wind might be blowing us. Now, some of you who know sailboats know that on larger sailboats, there's this part underneath the water called a keel. Can you imagine that in your minds? This large, sometimes it's full of uh, lead or something, but it sticks down below the boat into the water. And that is what keeps it. It can turn, it can shift, it can lean, but it stays on its course. And it doesn't just drift wherever the wind wants to take it. 
the church in every generation, and particularly at this moment, we need a strong and weighty keel deep in the water to help us stay on the course. On election day, I drove to Florence, South Carolina for a clergy meeting. Some clergy from our diocese gathered together. We had a worship service, and one of our bishops, David Bryan, gave the homily. He spoke from Colossians 1. He shared simple and powerful words about Jesus. And as he spoke, I just felt the immense weight of Jesus. And I realized that it is Jesus and Jesus alone that is the only thing heavy enough to act as a counterbalance to the winds and the waves of life. Whether that be this political season or whether it be something in your personal life, There's nothing, there's no movement, there's no political party, there's no initiative, there's no charismatic leader, there's nothing for us personally, there's no self-help program, there's no diet, there's no vocation, there's nothing that is weighty enough except Jesus. He's the only one that will help us stay the course. And so with gratitude to our bishop for leading us to Jesus, leading me to Jesus on election day, I want to also take us into Colossians and explore how Jesus is our ballast and our keel. If you have not already, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. This is some of the most exalted and soaring language about our Lord. I don't know if he's ever quite described in the way that he is in these verses. Let me just read them again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The word of the Lord. Yeah, we needed to thank God for that. There is so much here. There's so much in these words. In some ways, um, I just encourage you to read them and let them soak into you. But let me offer a little bit of exposition. Paul begins by saying he is the image of the invisible God. These are profound words. Many people believe in a God. They have some conception of Him. They may pray to Him. They may carry out some sort of religious rituals to Him. God they're okay with, but they're not sure about Jesus. They're not quite really ready to embrace all the teachings of the Christian church, specifically about Jesus. I think that's the case for many in Charlotte, for many in our country. I think in Charlotte, you'll find many, many people, the statistics tell us 93% that will identify, self-identify as a Christian, but what Christian might mean to them is simply theist. 
well, I, I believe in a God, and I'm sort of in a Christian culture, but whether or not they embrace Jesus as the revelation of God, we're not sure. But here Paul is telling us that's what Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. He is the perfect representation of God. And then later in verse 19, he says that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, friends, if you want to know God, you must know Jesus. And the New Testament is unequivocal about this. Jesus himself says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we're all at different points in our journey seeking God, seeking truth. And so some people may not yet have grasped the wonder and the glory of how Jesus is revealing God. But at some point in our spiritual development, we must come to Jesus or we will miss God altogether. So many people today are like Philip in John 14, the passage that we read. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, show us God, and that will be enough for us. We just need God, right? Wrong. Jesus says to him, have I not been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Why is this important as part of our ballast, our keel in the water? Because vague notions of God or some idea of a higher spiritual being, they are not enough to act as a counterbalance to the wind and the wave. If all we know and cling to is this general sense of God, then we will drift because it's way too easy to fill up that notion of God with whatever message de jour that our culture has embraced. It's way too easy for individuals, for church leaders, for cultural influencers, and yes, for politicians to just make up their own notions of God, to place on God what they want Him to be. We hear this all the time. Maybe sometimes we say it ourselves. Whenever you hear someone or hear yourself say, yes, but my God is a God of whatever, a God of love, a God who wouldn't condemn people, a God who wouldn't permit, prohibit somebody from doing this or that. Whenever we use that language, but my God is a God of, we know we're on that track to making up our own God. Our individual notions of God are just that. They're notions. Really worse, they're actually idols created by deceitful hearts. The God who is there is the God who is revealed by Jesus. The God revealed by Jesus is the God that we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's through Jesus that we come to understand the Trinity. And only that God has weight and substance to keep us on the course. Generic notions of God that don't refer to Jesus, that don't refer to the Trinity, are like a Hobie cat. They're fine to putz around the lake on, but if the wind picks up, they're not enough. You will drift. You will end up on the weeds. Verse 16. Paul continues this beautiful hymn to Christ. He says, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. But then listen to what he lists 
included in this all things. I think it's critical for our political moment. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Do you catch that? Do you know what that means for our day and age? Every power in the universe, visible and invisible, political office or spiritual force, has been created by Jesus, and then here's the kicker, for Jesus. Everything owes its existence to Jesus and was created to serve him. The presidency, the Congress, the Supreme Court, the local school board, by Jesus, for Jesus. No, 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 some might say, no, no, we have religion over here, we have politics and government over here, we have these things over here, the Constitution keeps them all separate. Yes, that's well and good, that might be good government, but that's not what the Apostle Paul says. He says all things, all authorities, by Jesus, for Jesus. I think sometimes, um, without meaning to, Christians have given way to this lesser view of Jesus by trying in every way we can to get God in government. Let's just get God somehow in government. Let's, let's fight those battles for him. And maybe some of those battles are worth fighting. But let's not forget for a moment that Jesus doesn't need our help to get in government. He's already got it. It's created by him and for him. Now, that doesn't mean that all the rulers and authorities recognize that at this moment. Need I illustrate? Most are in some state of rebellion. But the rebellion does not mean that God has lost control. Spend some time reading through Psalm 2, one of the most important psalms in the whole Psalter, especially for understanding Jesus. It starts in the beginning with the nations of the world gathering together and conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed, which we come to understand is Jesus. Does anyone know how God responds to all the nations festering in their rebellion? He laughs at them. He scoffs them. He mocks them. And then he takes them down with a rod of iron. All things by Jesus, for Jesus. This is our weight. This is our ballast if we give way to lesser views of Jesus, that he's somehow not as on the throne as we think he is, then we will drift, we will blow off course. Paul continues, verse 17. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. A lot of questions right now. Questions about party politics. How's the Republican Party going to hold together? How's the Democratic Party going to hold together? What about the economy? Is that going to recover well? Is it going to respond? What's it going to do with this new president-elect? And then we just have the country itself, deeply divided, deeply set against each other. How is it going to hold? I'm also aware that quite apart from party politics, you may have things going on in your life that the news headlines don't catch. But you're feeling like something in your life may be unraveling. Something in your emotional state, marriage, kids, job, is not holding together. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus. In him, 
all things hold together. Yes, we know that many things will fall apart, but Jesus is not falling apart. On the contrary, he is the one holding all things together. And ironically, he's holding together people and institutions that oppose him, that don't even recognize him. Remember last week from Daniel 5, Daniel said these words to the foolish king Belshazzar. He said, you have not honored the God in whose hand is your breath. Apart from Christ, everything would fall apart. Atoms would just disintegrate and fly out of existence. Everything would go to chaos. The world goes on, friends, because God, because Christ is holding it together. Do you have that kind of view of a cosmic Christ? Do you wake up in the morning remembering that your lungs work because Jesus creates your lungs to work? The sun rises because Jesus holds the universe and its magnetic forces and its solar powers and it goes on. And he upholds governments and everything that we see and know and all he would have to do is remove his hand and it would all fall apart. But he doesn't. Every day, despite our rebellion, he continues to hold it all together. But then we know something as, as his children. We know that the closer we are to the one who holds all things together, the more we are held together. Yeah, something might be falling apart in your life. Yeah, something might be falling apart in the country. But you draw near to the one who is not falling apart and who holds all things together. When we come to verse 18, Paul writes, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Friends, who won on Tuesday? Who took first place? Donald Trump? GOP? Paul's got a different perspective. He says Christ is preeminent. Literally, that in everything, Christ might have first place. That's how you can translate that word. Who won on Tuesday? Jesus won. Actually, Jesus had won a long time ago. Before the world was created, he was first place, eternally first place. There's no election that changes that. No administration can add to that or take away from it. Jesus is not more preeminent because the GOP is in power. He would not have been less preeminent if the Democrats had taken power. Jesus was, is, and will forever be first place in everything. So if you feel like boasting, go right ahead and boast, but boast in Jesus. If you feel like something deep has been lost, maybe it has in some ways, but not in Jesus. And so run to him. He is one. He is preeminent. He is first in everything. And what about the church? What happened on Tuesday that affected the church? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, I know. We think that there's a lot of things going on. But because the one who is first, who is preeminent, is the head of the body, we are no better off or worse off as a result of Tuesday. The conditions in which we operate might look a little different for a time, for a while. 
The winds of culture may blow this direction or that direction, but our course remains the same. Jesus is still in office. He is our head. He is our commander-in-chief. We live in this, and we will not be tossed to and fro by the waves. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is first place. That's our ballast. That's our keel. We looked at 19 already. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Let's take a look at verse 20. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is in first place. Everything is created, created by him and for him. He's holding all things together. But what's his goal? What's his aim? What's he doing with all his power? Paul tells us here the greatest and most surprising and shocking news we could have imagined. The one with all of that power, the creator of all, the preeminent one, instead of using all of his place and power to squash our pathetic rebellion, is seeking peace. He comes to us with terms of peace. He says, let us be reconciled. Let us get back into right relationship." And we might ask, yes, but what are the terms? What is it going to cost us? And I think Jesus, his answer would be twofold. It's going to cost you nothing, and it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you nothing because I made peace by my blood on the cross. I paid for your rebellion, and I did it gladly because I love you and I want you back. It's also going to cost you everything. Because there's no way that you can receive the fullness of my life without it displacing all the other claims of your own little sovereignty, all the other little things that you want to hold on to. There's no way that can work together. And so it will cost you everything. To receive my life, you must give up your own. So what's our Lord doing with the power, his preeminence? He's putting the world back together again. He's making peace. He's reconciling it, and he's doing it through this center point of history, the cross, and his blood that was shed there. So friends, this is Jesus. This is the image of the invisible God, the one by whom and for whom all things were created, the one who is holding all things together, the one who is and will be first place. And the one who is reconciling all things to himself, making peace by his blood on the cross. Let that sink into your psyche. Let it permeate your soul. Let him be heavier in you than all the winds and the waves around you that come against you. Let this be our ballast. Let this be our keel. That by him and in him and through him, we will stay the course. Let us pray. So Jesus, we now ask by your Spirit to weight us properly in you. Each individual heart, I pray that you would ground and weight us for King of Kings as a church, that you would allow us to just be so um, focused on Jesus and who he is and for your church across this country and across this world, 
We pray that on this morning, new vision and hope and clarity might be given to all about who Jesus is and how we are found in him. We bless you, Lord. We thank you that you sit over all, that you benevolently reign over this life and this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.